Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. This podcast is brought to you in association with Globalizing the Rising, 1916 in Context, a major conference which will take place in University College Dublin on the 5th and 6th of February 2016. For more information, go to centenaries.ucd.ie. In this episode, a paper recorded at the Universities in Revolution and State Formation Conference, which took place in UCD Newman House on the 5th and 6th of June 2015. This project was funded by an Irish Research Council New Foundations Award and by a University College Dublin Decade of Centenaries Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. This episode features a recording from Panel 1 on Day 2, Transformations Political, Transitions Educational, Ireland, 1890-1923. The paper, True History Must Be Written From Within, History Honours at the Irish Universities, circa 1890-1910, was given by Rory Cullen from Queen's University, Belfast. James Barlow, then Erasmus Smith Professor of Modern History, proclaimed at a Trinity College Dublin lecture in 1873 that, quote, In Ireland, a lecture on modern history must be regarded as an incitement to a breach of the peace. We must must view as something absolutely portentous the courage of a lecturer who, unbacked by the police, takes as his subject a period of modern Irish history. In contrast, by the early years of the 20th century, there was a greater recognition for modern history as a useful subject that demanded status in Irish universities. Many also asserted that um, Irish content should be given more consideration, However, this raised difficult questions regarding politics, primary source material, and the Irish language. For instance, in 1908, one Irish Times journalist wrote that, quote, I feel an injustice has been done to myself, as well as to my generation, in making the story of Ireland so difficult to learn. In spite of this, they went on to state that the Irish language was essentially useless and a mere pleasure compared to the business of learning history. So this paper explores history at the Irish universities at the turn of the 20th century, focusing on key shifts in the early years of the 20th century and clashing notions of what constituted valuable source matter, subject matter. Um, Although the parameters of my study do not appear to immediately cover either revolution or state formation, um, rather it informs later developments, the establishment of the National University in 1908 was seen by many as a key, if not central, institution to a future home rule Ireland. So perhaps it's more of a case of the state that might have been formation. I'd also like to note that my attention today is upon what, we'd very broad, what was very broadly called then modern history, which is essentially everything past the fall of Rome, and not an ancient history. There are several reasons for the marginalised status of modern history in the 19th century. Firstly, it was secondary to other subjects. So at the three Queen's Colleges in Galway, Belfast and Cork, there was a chair in English literature and history. So that was one chair, and it was usually a literary expert. And places like Trinity, their, their main focus was on classics, mathematics, and philosophy. The Royal University required at least 10 subjects for a past degree, and history was very much an optional subject. Um, history professors were sorely underpaid at Trinity, um, in comparison. At the turn of the 20th century, they were only paid £80 a year, and just for comparison, the English professor earned £629. And it was only introduced as a pass course at the end of the 19th century, so before it was just an honours course in the final two years. Um, So Catholics avoided history at the Royal University as much as the hierarchy had forbidden their flock to attend classes that were led by unsanctioned or Protestant teachers. And many Catholics consistently called for a Catholic college or university or the creation of dual chairs, meaning that there'd be two professors in history, one Catholic and one presumably Protestant. It was also neglected in schools. There was very little history in intermediate schools, and it was only in national schools from 1900. Um, 
government disapproved of the subject to some degree because of its potential for controversy and unrest, and it was twice to propose to unendow or abolish history chairs or just to get rid of the subject altogether in the late 19th century. Um, it wasn't valued by some colleges, so, for instance, Cork produced very few history honours, um, and medicine was by far the most popular degree choice for Catholics. So why do people study history? Um, probably for many of the same reasons as they do today. It was a useful preparatory course before embarking upon professional careers, especially a law degree, um, and it was usually taken in tandem in honours programmes with jurisprudence and political economy. Um, it was also taken by many who had gone to take holy orders. So both Trinity College and the Royal University focused upon constitutional history of Britain and Europe. The Royal University generally followed Trinity in its changes to history programmes, for instance, the introduction of the past course in the 1890s. And in turn, Trinity probably made changes to keep up to date with the Oxbridge history honours. The Trinity course was run by the professors, so they decided the content. So under the professorship of J.B. Berry from 1893 to 1902, who was a future Regis professor of history at Cambridge, the Trinity course reflected his interests, and students were asked questions on his great passion, the Byzantine Empire. Um, so you get questions about the kind of Bulgarian siege of Constantinople, but there wouldn't really be anything on kind of St. Patrick or this sort of stuff. Um, Berry's successor, John Wardell, was known for his predilection for Irish history, and he introduced more content accordingly. At the Royal University, in an effort to retain control over a controversial subject, the Senate designed the course, and the texts on the lists were all by respected lawyers, primarily focused on constitutional history and with minimal primary source material. A restructure of the history honours took place in 1900 at the Royal University, and Irish history became one of four areas of study alongside general European history, 17th century England and 17th century France. The dates for the Irish segment spanned 1172 to 1689 and allowed a very broad overview based on P.W. Joyce's Concise History of Ireland, a work that was noted for its particularly balanced narrative. And as I'll elaborate upon shortly, this shows some recognition that Ireland's past was not merely a subsidiary part of English history. But for revivalists and nationalists, it was only a small step in the right direction, and the Irish segment was only optional and very broad. Um, this is people who took history honours from 1890 to 1910. So on the left, we have 1890s. And on the right, 1900s. And this is people taking it at the Royal University. The first two columns are people studying in Belfast and in Protestant schools. So you don't actually have to attend the college to take the Royal University exams. Um, you just have to take the exams. You actually have to attend any classes. So these would be primarily Anglicans and Presbyterians. And then in this column, which you can't see at all, is um, Cork and Galway, which would have been more mixed. But they didn't really produce many history honours. Um, the green is people who did private study. And in the black is people who went to UCD or Catholic schools like Loretto's. And, um, so they would have been primarily, well, if not all, Catholics, basically. So the shift at the turn of the 20th century gives us, um, shows that uh, more than 50% of people took, more than 50% of the history honours after 1900 were Catholics, which is quite significant. Um, it's, it's, it's also, I mean, Catholics do start entering universities more at this period and entering the professional world. Um, but places like UCD were also turning into something of a hub for kind of broad Irish studies, and Owen McNeill and Patrick Pearce were invited to speak on language and history, and Professor Edmund Hogan became a central figure in Irish historical and philo philological studies. So there was a key watershed in the university question, um, was the Catholic hierarchy responding to the success of UCD in the 1890s, and an Episcopal letter in 1897 declared the end of uncompromising demands for denominational education and a de facto rather than de jure Catholic atmosphere was now acceptable, which would arguably become reality in UCD after 1908. 
To shed some light on debates surrounding history in the first decade of the 20th century, my key sources are two royal commissions. The first, the Robertson Commission, which investigated higher education outside of Trinity from 1901 to 3, and the Fry Commission of 1906 to 7, which dealt solely with Trinity. They contain fascinating, if often very lengthy, witness testimonies, and they also exhibit a greater appetite for historical studies and frustration with ossified courses and out-of-date practices. This was in sharp contrast to the Commission of 1885, where most mentions of modern history were in reference to how unprepared the students were and general professorial indifference. Several witnesses asserted that the history and English literature chairs at the Queen's Colleges should be split into two constituent parts, and there was derision about the treatment of Irish history. In recent years, the publication of Irish manuscripts and interests from continental philologists had given a new scientific platform to the study of the national past. Edward J. Gwynn, on the far left here, or right, um, he was a Trinity College Fellow and Royal Irish Academy's Celtic Lecturer, and, demonstra- and he demonstrates that Trinity figures were more accepting of Irish content. He stated, quote, that history has, till now, been written from without. The true history must be written from within. This implies that the Irish should write their own history, but also the within refers to within universities, a point he makes again in his testimony. However, when asked about the potential establishment of a chair in Irish history, Gwyn said that, quote, I think I should prefer if you had a separate chair in Irish archaeology and not Irish history, because Irish history is so much involved in English history. The inference of this is that a distant, ancient or medieval Ireland was of particular interest, but should not be allowed to divert attention away from the main English narrative. To Gwyn, Irish philology or history was purely of scholarly interest, and as I'll show shortly, members of the Gaelic League perceive the study of the nation's past to not just be of interest, but central to any national institution. The Robertson, report, the Robertson Commission's reports um, were ultimately not implemented as it was weakened by a lack of consensus and by not including Trinity. Still, it did promote more academic research as well as the establishment of Irish studies departments, showing some, showing some re- redefinition of the purpose of universities. The next few years saw further frustration in attempts to solve the university question and increasing criticism of Trinity College for not only being a preserve of the ascendancy but for being anti-national. The rise of the Gaelic League and its brand of cultural nationalism shifted emphasis away from criticism of non-denominal education towards demands for a national university that would act as an intellectual headquarters for what was termed Irish Ireland. The Fry Commission exhibits both... So this is the next commission. Exhibits both Trinity figures... it exhibits Trinity figures' recognition of reform in regards to national content, but also its refusal to adhere to the more radical demands of the Gaelic League in regards to the language. There was no consensus from Trinity Fellows in the Fry Commission about how much Irish content to include. Fellow and board, mem- board member T.T. Gray labelled a mooted moderatorship in Celtic languages as a waste of time, although it was established in 1907, thanks to Gwynne. J.H. Bernard, a Trinity Fellow and later Provost, said that, quote, the principal university, meaning Trinity, or the University of Dublin, in Ireland should teach Irish history. This led to an angry retort from Douglas Hyde, one of the commissions, about the neglect of Irish literature until the chairman told him to stop putting forward his own views and to back off. History professor John Wardell supported the introduction of more Irish history, but was silent on the question of the language, identifying state papers as the key primary source. Um, Different inferences were, were, however, drawn by Gaelic League revivalists, and for many of them, a more immediate and influential model for academic practice was German developments in philology rather than history. And mastery of the Irish language was increasingly seen as a prerequisite to study of the ancient and medieval past. Waddell was criticised by revivalist Owen McNeill after the professor had identified state, state papers as key to any study of the Irish past. McNeill said in his interview that, quote, Though Mr Waddell desires to be recognised as a reformer, he has not quite broken with the obscurant tendency of Trinity wherever Ireland is concerned. He says that the greater portion of Irish history lies in the record office of the United Kingdom, France and Spain. 
This is tantamount to saying that the greater part of Irish history is the record of English aggression. Figures like McNeil were challenging the concept that events in Ireland were subordinate to a narrative focused on English development. They promoted the belief that a peculiarly Irish or nationalist past, national past existed and more pointedly was worthy of scientific study in schools and universities alongside the language. McNeil believed contact with Irish history would make Trinity, quote, more liberal and conciliatory towards all schools of opinion in the country. So a crucial difference between revivalists and Trinity figures were interpretations of what patriotism meant. Two, to Trinity figures, Irish history was at best just an aspect of the bigger picture that was English or British history, whereas to others, the study of the national past was paramount. Ultimately, Trinity academics and unionist MPs in Parliament successfully campaigned against its involvement in the proposed university that came to fruition after 1908 and retained control over their curriculum. Still, there was an appeal for Irish studies in Trinity, and we shouldn't overlook this. Um, It is also interesting to speculate or inquire about how lay Catholics who were less connected with the revival movement regarded history. For instance, an organisation of Catholic graduates demanded dual chairs in history and philosophy, amongst other demands, but arguably their primary concern was opening up education to the Catholic middle classes. This indifference was a cause of concern for revivalists who were frustrated at functional university education that they saw as simply aiming to churn out professionals, and for them promoting the national dimension was a key way of fighting this. So, the, uh, the 1908 Act, which set up the National University, I'll save you from the details, it was um, a relatively successful compromise. Trinity was left to its own devices, and the National University was established with its de facto Catholic atmosphere. And finally, Queen's College Belfast was transformed into Queen's University Belfast. The structures of the new universities were carried out by commissioners in Belfast and Dublin. They set up new chairs in the historical studies, which were now deemed integral to any modern university. The Dublin, commission, the Dublin commissioners included an Oxford Celtic professor, John Rees, and other language campaigners. And so unsurprisingly at UCD, chairs in modern history, modern Irish history, early Irish history and Celtic archaeology were established. This is John Marcus O'Sullivan in the middle, modern history. Um, he was actually a philosopher, had a PhD from Heidelberg, and he got the job because he'd taken history in his first year. And Mary Hayden on the left is modern Irish history. And then Owen McNeil is early Irish history. And Celtic archaeology was R.E.S. McAllister. I think was named, name dropped a few times yesterday. Anyway, so um, universities now acknowledge history as an integral discipline with its own methods. In the National University, and particularly at UCD, Irish history became increasingly central. Books that were ne- never made the Royal University list were chosen, like Alice Stopford Green's The Making of Ireland and Its Undoing. Owen McNeil's exam questions demonstrate his efforts to bring the study of medieval and Celtic Ireland to the fore. Arguably, the initial years after the Act saw two different approaches to academic history emerge in higher education. I've, I've tentatively named these the Irish and the British schools. Trinity and Queen's hired their own or British-trained historians, and Irish history remained a limited part of the course. For instance, Professor F.M. Powick, trained in, Man- in history at Manchester and Oxford, taught at Belfast a broader historical narrative than that was found at UCD, as well as challenging students with exam questions on historiographical theory. The modern historians at UCD were actually trained in different disciplines and were arguably chosen for their revivalist or nationalist connections. There was no official British or Irish history school, and this thesis does come under pressure when we consider Edmund Curtis at Trinity in the 1910s and James E.D. Todd at Queen's in the 1920s, who both promoted the study of Irish history. And UCD still taught a healthy amount of non-Irish content. Still, the Historical Academy was, in general, struck by severe differences in the value of certain sources and their inferences. So, to conclude... Modern history was transformed during this period from a neglected subject to one that demanded a prominent role in any university. 
The idea of university history as a culturally didactic tool was also growing in popularity, in contrast to its earlier utilisation as a preparatory device for professional examinations and careers. This relative, if still limited, enhancement of the discipline was, however, marked by differences about what to research, what to teach students, particularly in regard to the Irish language. It was increasingly unacceptable to solely focus upon the English constitution or European wars without acknowledging the worth of the Irish dimension. This was partly due to developments abroad concerning the rise of the academic professional and history in British and other universities, but also because of a new scientific excuse me, respect for the Irish past. With the publication of Irish manuscripts, the distant, beca- the distant past had become, was becoming knowable. It was now possible to bring some order into the previously obfuscated. Central to all this was the Gaelic League, who set their sights on cultivating a national university. The establishments of chairs of Irish history demonstrate that this dimension was exceptional and could, if not should, be studied independently. However, this was not shared in Belfast, where for the next 10 years at least, history reign remained pretty British-focused. Arguably, Trinity was marked by great, quite a great ambivalence, but essentially, contrasting definitions of historical study were formed. Ultimately, many of the issues raised in this paper in regards to different methodologies, subjects worthy of study, and the purpose of teaching national history have remained in Irish history, and indeed Irish studies, ever since. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this History Hub podcast. You can find many more podcasts at historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts.